we're not going to get into the time zones. But Robin, we- and I were having, Robin and I were having this conversation about time zones because she was like, you know, I think that Eastern time zone is the best. It was not uncorrected <laughs> because you had said originally the central time zone is supreme. Let me ask you something, Lupe. Do you have a time zone bias? Do you think that, that Pacific time is the best? Um. <laughs> you see, this is why we edit. All right, and welcome back. We are finally back in the studio. We don't know about y'all, but we can probably assume it's about the same. 2020 is just a roller coaster, and we have been on the roller coaster for so long, but we have finally gotten our acts together and now we are back to recording and talking with some great folks about their linguistic career adventures. Would you call it an adventure? Is that an appropriate word? I don't even know. I definitely think it's an adventure. An adventure. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You have a thousand faces, you know, Uh, Mm. it's over and then it's not. It just kind of keeps on going. It just continues. Sometimes it's downhill. Sometimes, I don't know, that's the only experience I've ever had. So it's, it's downhill for me. But anyway, we're not here to talk about that. We're here to talk about Lupe. So we'll be right back. And we're so excited. Season four goes on. Bradley. So we are back and we are here to talk with Lupe about her research. Lupe, if you want to start and just give kind of a brief introduction about yourself and then we can get into talking about your wonderful research that you've been doing. Great, thanks guys. My name is Lupe Rincla Mendoza. I'm a PhD candidate at the Pennsylvania State University in the Department of Applied Linguistics. Um, I'm originally from Los Angeles, California and I moved out here about three summers ago. Yeah, so this has been my home ever since. That is such a change up from LA to to college. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's a lot of time zones. We won't we we won't talk about time zones. (laughs) Okay, we will spare everyone. (laughs) So tell okay, so 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 tell me so you did you did your undergrad at at Penn State also, right? No. So I went and did um, my undergrad and my master's degree at California State University, San Bernardino, Mm -hmm. um, which has largely always been a teaching institution with the exception of like Sacramento State and San Diego State, which I think out of the, out of the many schools that are within that system, they're the only two that receive any sort of significant federal funding for research. Um, But the, the other universities are definitely more just teaching oriented. And I mean, you see that with the teaching load that tenure line faculty get there and the, the sorts of, also the kind of like the research expectations too, they're still expected to publish, but the pressure isn't as great. Mm-hmm. And so speaking of publications, you, you published a couple pieces, one most recently this year, right? Yeah. That's exciting. I one day want to be like you and Bowden. I'm working on it. It's just not good. Again, the downhill thing, that's where I am. But anyway, so going to more like your research and what you've been publishing on, it sounds so interesting and wonderful and honest. And I will be honest here, I don't fully understand it. So I would love to learn more about your topic. So I've really been interested for a long time, and this is especially true when I was in my master's program, how 
students learn to become college students. And I think more recently that's, that's shifted to how do graduate students come to develop and learn to be scholars of their mm -hmm. own. And so there's a line of, of work in applied linguistics and I think to a certain degree in sociolinguistics as well uh, called academic socialization, which specifically looks at, so what are the kinds of activities outside classroom things that graduate students do to become professionals within their discipline. Um, mm -hmm. Patsy mm -hmm. Duff work on this. Um, Sandra Holman um, has also done a great deal of work on this as well. But I think the current conversations in applied linguistics for the past, I want to say five years, if I'm being honest, has been about, so we've developed these models to talk about how graduate students become scholars, which stem from communities of practice from Levain Wenger's work to a great deal to look at the relationships that students and their professors form and how in those interactions you become socialized, you be, learn to become a scholar. Mm -hmm. A lot of recent critique of that work notes that that model doesn't necessarily do a lot of justice to the things that pop up in that process. So like inequities, power differences, uh, gender, you know, gen gender discrimination, racial discrimination and things like that. And so that's kind of been my area of looking at, okay, so we keep saying that this is an ongoing problem in the scholarship, but how do we actually address it? And so this is where my interest in sociocultural theory, which is largely based on Vygotsky's work, comes in where um, a lot of the research in applied linguistics tends to separate language and interaction and the activity that graduate students do as they're learning to become scholars. Whereas I'm making the case, and this is again coming a lot from sociocultural theory um, and Leontev's work as well, is the notion that we have to look at language and activity together. Mm -hmm. And so how do we organize interactions and how are they managed in such a way that they're conducive to that activity. And so in this case, for my dissertation, I'm looking at writing group meetings with graduate students in the humanities and what these interactions look like. How do those interactions actually facilitate the development of these advanced writing skills that are supposed to be used to publish mm -hmm. work as, you know, novice scholars and whatnot. And then are they actually, is that interaction actually doing what it's said said it's supposed to be doing. And so figuring out kind of like, what's the lay of the land in terms of the language that they use to, to get this stuff done. And then by figuring out what is actually going on in those interactions, then future work will obviously look at more kind of like interventions of, okay, so this is what seems to be like is going on. Now we can actually address it. And I think in, and in those moments, once we figure out like what's going on in those interactions, we'll be able to kind of actually be able to address social inequality, racism, sexism, things like that. You can't really figure that out without understanding, you know, the relationship between the interaction and, and the activity itself. So that sounds so amazing. And I'm so glad that there's work being done on this because I wasn't even, you know, very aware that this was something that needed to be looked at. But based on what you've said, clearly, and then that, that makes me reflect on my own experiences. And yeah, for sure. Super interesting. Um, is has been focused on stem okay so how you know how graduate students in stem learn to do these things uh but there's okay. very little work in, in the humanities and so 
And now, you know, we hear reports about, you know, graduate students at Columbia not being able to place after they leave. And so it's like, what is happening? Obviously, you know, there's these, you know, larger things with higher education where, where right. things are now. Mm -hmm. But I think it, it speaks to kind of like the larger problems that aren't being addressed in terms of how we professionalize graduate students and how we, um, how we can do better. Honestly, that's super fascinating. Um, and especially like, you know, if you look at like, I do, I do a lot of research on, on, on graduate students and especially like teaching like pedagogy and stuff like that. And there's so much in terms of like graduate student socialization is like a huge, is like a huge thing. It's a huge topic in teacher education as well, like professional socialization of teachers. But like, it always seems like it's lacking some angle, right? And I have never thought that taking like kind of like a, a, a sociolinguistic, <clears throat> excuse me, a sociolinguistic look at that and figuring out like, you know, and actually like examining. Um, so I guess like you're, are you looking, are you looking at speech? Are you doing like discourse analysis or like, what are you, um, like what kind of, uh, like what kind of methodology are you doing in these, um, in this research? Yeah, so um, I, be using kind of analytic approach to to my research, uh, but it's largely informed by Mercer's work on how people use language to get things done. And so, like, he has this whole notion of inner thinking, and in that if we look at turn sequences, like yes or no questions and things like that, we can actually figure out, like, okay, if we just ask a yes or no question in this context will that actually be productive for cognitive development? And a lot of the research says no, because I mean, if you, if you just ask a simple yes or no question, like in a classroom, um, which is one of the questions that I tend to try to really avoid when I'm teaching, is because students are always gonna always say yes to avoid saying no, mm -hmm. and because then they have to put themselves out there to ask the question about what they don't understand. And so it's a discourse analysis that's informed largely by Neil Mersch's work. So trying to figure out what he calls are the conversational ground rules. So what are the rules for engagement? How does the, in this case for my study, how does the professor allocate turns, manage sequences, reinitiate sequences, self-selection and things like that. So it's it comes from conversation analysis, really, that kind of that groundwork of like, what do these terms do? But then, you know, drawing larger implications of that, which is why it's not conversation analysis, but looking at, so how do these terms then get actually people to do something with the text, whether that be like an oral analysis of the, the draft of a student that's putting together, just, you know, before they send it off to publication. And, and so it draws kind of from the nitty-gritty of conversation analysis of looking at those kinds of terms but then you know putting that sociocultural theory slant on it of uh okay so what is what does this tell us about what they've learned and what you know graduate students can do in that moment and then kind of just using that as well and so like a larger thing i didn't mention too that's part of my study is i'm going to be doing like narrative interviews over the next year where it's outside of these writing group meetings where like i'll have a draft a revised draft of, of the student's work and they'll have to look at different clips from these meetings and you know i'll have to ask so like what did you understand was being asked of you in this moment so like trying to figure out okay anyone could like really interpret the question differently but if the student who's getting the feedback doesn't necessarily understand what's being asked of them so if they don't get that interactional intersubjectivity of like this is what's being asked of me this is how i need to respond then it doesn't really matter what kinds of questions you ask because if we don't have that kind of that foundation of like we're on the same page i know what you're asking for then the kind of cognitive development that we want to see 
in graduate students isn't going to be there because the language itself isn't being used as a tool to kind of mediate that sort of development, which is, you know, a big thing in, in Vygotsky's work. So you're looking at international students only in these in these groups in these writing groups is that correct um so the program that i'm looking at is uh very white because i'm looking at students in a writing studies program mm -hmm. but which it's kind of been a long kind of criticism of that field to begin with and that it's they're trying to tackle the multilingual turn even though like fields like second language acquisition and applied linguistics certainly have long left that kind of conversation we've critiqued it we've talked about like why we can't no longer just talk about these things as like being multilingual, that it's a bit more complex and nuanced than that. But to back to your question, uh, I'm going to be looking specifically at kind of like the newer crop of PhD and ME students who were specifically recruited to, I guess, diversify the, the program and just kind of, um, you know, be more representative of, of the students that people are working with at Penn State. And so my hope is to have first time and certainly, yeah, first time PhD, people who will be getting their PhD. And so from, you know, different backgrounds, whether that be Latinx, certainly, you know, students from Asian backgrounds, but I don't think that there's a large portion of them that actually participate in these writing groups. So I'll find that out once I actually, you know, reach out to the professors and start giving consent forms and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly, you know, African-American students as well, because I think that a large minority portion is still largely disserviced by graduate programs. There's, there's certainly a lot of research out there that, that speaks to you know, the, the dangers of what minority students face in terms of like, if expectations aren't clear at the departmental and like program level, then how are we gonna expect them to actually become scholars and how are we gonna actually support them if we don't know within these like small instances, like these extracurricular professionalization activities, like how can we actually help them? And I think this is probably a good place to, to kind of start that work. And so- uh, I think so. I mean, I think it's very, I think it's, I think it's really valuable. I mean, honestly, I've thought, I've always thought and had conversations with, with other people that it always seems like in, um, I remember seeing it for the, like for the first time when I was doing study abroad in undergrad and seeing like, you know, like, like I was in Germany and like me as like a Westerner and as like a white man, the way that I was seen and the way that I was kind of like accepted into the university system and how like I had no issue, you know, if I wanted to talk to a professor or make, you know, appointments and things like that, it was a really kind of, um, it was like, it was very like normal, but then I had friends that were international students that were particularly from China and there was a barrier there just in terms of what's my role as a student like how do I negotiate this role with my with my advisor and so like for me it just seemed like that community was like so much more accessible than for um you know my my friends that were from that were from China that had a really that had a, had a really difficult time you know trying to get or like gain acceptance and like to that community but being in higher education I mean like I, I see it it doesn't get talked about enough and mm -hmm. it's something that especially in education, we're supposed to be, you know, very opening, very welcoming, you know, et cetera, et cetera, like all those warm, fuzzy, you know, kind of ideas. But then the truth is that they felt very left out. They felt very marginalized in these, in these interactions. It's very difficult for them. And I think this is, I think this is like, this is wonderful, like very humanist kind of research. And I absolutely. It's I absolutely beautiful love. research. I, I am just sitting here kind of like absorbing it. And I'm so excited that, um, you know, you're doing this for your, for your project, for sure. Um, I did have 
something that came up while you were talking about this, and I'm kind of, and I'm also kind of just really excited that Bowden is also talking with you because this kind of really reminds me of his talks when he explains to me his research stuff, which maybe one day we'll have a little Bowden interview, Gradlin's, you know, in the future, we'll find out. Um, so my question was, because you've had experience on the other side of the country, across many time zones, as Bowden would put it, <laughs> Um, you know, like, you know, the California state system, especially at a school that was very teaching oriented. Do you think your, your, your research at Penn State and kind of what you're beginning to find in your, in your studies, how would it be, be different? Because Penn State is this huge, huge right. like very research oriented, I want to say R1, R1, right? Yeah. yeah, definitely R1. This R1 environment where you're training these researchers and you're developing all these skills. And then you kind of have a difference, you come from a different system and you've seen different ways and interactions between professors and, and students. And so I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on, on that. Yeah, um, that's a good question. So I think this really also just comes from the work that I did with my master's advisor. She went and got her PhD from the University of Arizona way back when, you know, the likes of Jane Hill, Susan Phillips, mm -hmm. all of those people were still there in their SLAP program. Mm -hmm. And she was really mentored by these strong, like, women. And so I think for me, having that opportunity to work with her was really like inspiring, but also having that kind of mentorship really prepared me to do the work mm -hmm. I'm doing now at Penn State. And so I think if, if I hadn't worked as closely with her as I had when I was a master's student, I, I think my experience would be vastly different mm -hmm. than now. Um, you know, there are obvious challenges that I, I didn't anticipate that, you know, come up, but I think in terms of developing that work ethic, developing kind of like that routine as a, as a researcher definitely helped and she played a large part in that. And, but I know that that's not the case for everyone, especially in a system like in the Cal State system. Right. And I think that's why my dissertation is, is so important to me because like I know that I was kind of, not, I don't wanna say lucky, but like fortunate maybe. Yeah, so like it was mm -hmm. really, and just the timing of it all just kind of really aligned and I know that you know larger Cal states like Long Beach um, also mm -hmm. have these really great scholars like Alexandra Jaffe was there before she passed away mm -hmm. uh, but I think for my contacts with the people that I have there I know that in terms of that kind of mentorship that I got they're not getting that and so I think at these larger teaching institutions with students who are from minority backgrounds, who do have that potential to be at an R1, we're doing them a huge disservice if we don't learn to not just like, you know, mentor them, but also like talk to the people that do the mentoring. And like, this is what you're actually doing is you're interacting with your student. And mm -hmm. not, not that I wanna say it's not helpful, but there's a different way to manage the interactions so that they actually you know, develop the skills that you want them to acquire by the time they're done with their PhD mm -hmm. program. It's always interesting, like the, sorry, I just wanted to interject something oh, yeah. like the, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what would be the, what would be the word for that, but not conceited, what's the word I'm looking for, but like some, some, so like someone who say, you know, is in one of these, has one of these positions where they serve as a mentor or they, they have the, they have the opportunity to serve as a mentor and they've say they've been like a practicing professor, scholar, whatever for so many years. And it's like, they just think like, oh, well, you know, I've done this for, 
you know, 15 or 20 years. So of course I'll be a great mentor. And it's like, what, you know, there's actually like, there's things that go into this, right? There's like, there's qualities that you need and there's like, there's, it's a skill that you have to develop. You can't just, you know, have this experience of like, you know, it's great that you have this experience in the workforce and you've done this for, you know, so long. And I'm sure you have many things that I can gain from, but the actual mentee mentor relationship, I mean, it's a little bit more complex than just, uh, you know, I'm in the position of knowing everything and I'm going to transmit this to you. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or even like, Oh, I'm so-and-so and like, I'm this huge name. So like, it's my connection. To be about. It's like, that's, that's not how that works either. Like, absolutely. I think that's something I've definitely talked to both of you very extensively um, about that, you know, research and um, reputation don't necessarily translate into mentorship, which, you know, is why, you know, when Lupe was describing, when you were describing your project, I was just like this, this is it, you know, this is what we really need because I'm, I'm here really reflecting on, you know, people that I've had the, these wonderful experiences with and also these people that I haven't had really wonderful experiences with and I try to figure out like what does this person have that you know this other professor didn't have and you know at all levels at my in my bachelor's at my master's and now in my PhD and honestly you know it's and I think it's actually something I think that I've kind of put into my own practice and something that I really just try to do but I think for the most part, professors, you know, because there's so much on the line and this kind of goes back, I think also, you know, on this side of the whole situation that you're observing and you're studying is that professors are under so much, their administrative responsibilities and their teaching and their research, you know, on their own. And they're trying to still, to still do the very crazy thing of having a life, which I, you know, we kind of just give up at this point. I definitely understand like there, you know, there's a lot of different circumstances for different individuals, but at the same time, this is the environment. This is the community that you're helping form. Um, so yes, thank you. Your research is just, I, I think Bowden and I have just joined the Lupe fan club, honestly, like that's kind of where we are. Um, and so, and so uh, we'll take a short break and then we'll come back and we will be able to talk to you about your experiences as, you know, a student and kind of the connection between your research and your experiences as learning, as a learner. learner. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> So after all of that, that beautiful description of your research interests, um, we sort of would like to know now kind of your experiences about being a student and also being an educator. And I think in particular with you, Lupe, it's, it's kind of fascinating because your research interests are so directly connected to, to, to these different components of the graduate experience. So you're a PhD candidate now, you're done with coursework for the most part. And so looking back on your experiences at Penn State, but also at Cal State and San Bernardino, like how, you know, kind of what are your, some of your takeaways? Like what were your experiences? Kind of how did, and also how do they shape your research direction? I mean, I think I, I speak for a lot of people when we say we've had to work with some really difficult people, you know, both as, you know, classmates and, you know, with professors. Mm -hmm. So I think um, definitely from Cal State, having Caroline Bickers' support as a master's student and 
her believing in my work so much forced me to really like have confidence in what I do to like do what I what I'm doing and just like owning it and not being afraid to own it and I think that that definitely helped here because Cal State San Bernardino was not a research one institution coming here to a PhD program I was I think the first Latinx PhD student that they've had since the program started in I believe 2000 like in the 2000s or something like that mm -hmm. but having that kind of confidence really helped me stick my ground in those kind of difficult instances in you know in seminar where I had you know difficult classmates for whatever reason and you know thankfully those people like and I are adults and like work out our differences outside of the classroom and I mean it speaks to like the greatness of um the majority of people in my program where it's like you know like we can have a disagreement on on something and then you know talk about it outside of class and you know be like I'm still sticking to my guns and I'm glad that we talked about this outside of class and that you know we can be mature adults and move on, move on beyond this and so I think having her be my support system even now um she and I still talk definitely forced me to just you know stick to my guns and not to be afraid to stick to my guns because she's you know as a now as the director of graduate studies at Cal State she's had really tough encounters with with faculty there who've been somewhat abusive I would say to, to their grad students and so I think um having her kind of like as a role model of this is the right thing to do or the right thing to say is has gone a long way in um in shaping who i am in the, in the classroom and as a student it's definitely a reflection of the respect they have for you as a human and that just kind of is independent of the academic environment i think it's kind of uh i think this is something i've discussed with Bo and and justin and a few folks at another time but the environment that we work in can breed very good scholars and very good researchers, but they also breed these not so great human beings. And I think it's a very important distinction that unfortunately not a lot of people recognize. So we'll be back in just a brief moment and we're going to round out this wonderful conversation with Lupe uh, with a little lessons learned. So stay tuned. finished but before we go we have to talk about Lupe about her lessons learned so in this part of the podcast we ask you if you can go back to when you were a young grad student younger um, younger younger grad student, <laughs> excuse me, excuse me. <laughs> um, absolutely when you were a younger grad student and everything was wonderful and fun um, before you get to the stage where it's like you know everything is terrible no I'm, I'm just <laughs> If you, if you had to go back and tell yourself something that you feel like would be very important for yourself or for other young or grad students to know, what would that thing be? That's a tough one. I think for me, it's, it's like a two-parter. I don't know if that's okay. Um, all the parts. All the parts. So the first part, I think, would be be firm with your boundaries. Like identify what you're okay with and what you're not okay with. Not just as a researcher and trying to like find that work-life balance, but I think also as a person. Because I think one of the biggest lessons I think that graduate, that graduate school has definitely taught me is, you know, you teach people how you want to be treated. And I think one of the best ways to kind of figure that out is by establishing those boundaries 
firmly and early. It definitely helps weed out, you know, potential people that might not necessarily be um, good, good influences on you or um, might end up taking more energy from you. Um, and because I think being a grad, being a grad student is, is hard enough. And so I think you need to surround yourself with good supportive networks in and outside of school. And um, I think it's really important to be able to, to do that by, you know, being like, this is okay, this is not okay. Um, and you can take it or leave it. And the second part to that is, um, it's gonna be okay. I love that. Be I okay. need to hear that today too, <laughs> and every day, but for sure. Uh, one of the things we didn't talk about that much today was um, I, I do have PTSD and so like managing mm -hmm. that with grad school is always a challenge, but I think one of the things that I, when I really started going to therapy was telling myself it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. And I think a year into um, getting help and things like that, like I, like it, at first it felt like kind of silly saying that, but now it's like, like I say it and I like actually believe it. And so knowing that, you know, these tough moments are tough and that they're not easy and that you're going to feel not so great, but it's going to be okay. Mm -hmm. and um, reminding yourself that I'm being your own best advocate. Um, it's definitely the way to go, the way to survive all this, so. That's definitely a skill I've picked up, um, not necessarily during my master's, but definitely here. I definitely agree with being your own advocate, super important. You have your own dreams and your dreams are big, but other people aren't necessarily on board. So you got to fight for what you, for what you want to do with your life and how you want your work to contribute to, you know, whichever community you're working within. I think what what you're saying today is definitely um, definitely something I believe in, and also thanks for you know being being so candid and talking about um, and talking about that. Um, and it's something that doesn't get that doesn't get brought up often enough. And you know that the mental health aspect of graduate school is definitely is definitely something that can be that can be a challenge. And like going back to the thing of the thing of boundaries, I think that it's like it's it's our job as people who are like, we're going to be in academia of some, in some respect, you know, fingers crossed job market, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But like, it's honestly, it's our responsibility to kind of bring, like we see these issues, like your, your research shows it. Right. And so at some point we're going to be the responsible parties who we, it's like, it's our responsibility to make that change, to make it more, um, to make it more human, to make it more, more caring and stuff like that. And so I think that, you know, that's also something to, to leave it on a, to leave it on a good note. That's mm -hmm. uh, something that I definitely look forward to, look forward to doing is taking some of that toxicity out of, out of academia. Absolutely. This has been so wonderful. It's just been such a long time since we've been able to do a Gradlings episode. And I'm happy that the first one back was with you because you're just so wonderful, Lupe. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, it's been awesome. So, yeah. Be safe and stay well and, you know, fight the good fight, stick to your guns, all that. Stick to your guns. I really love that. I'm actually going to kind of make that your hashtag, stick to your guns. Um, she loves she loves a hashtag. I love it. I love a hashtag. I'll tell you what. I love hashtags and Shits Creek's gifs or gifs. I don't know how to pronounce it still. But those are my two things in life that keep me going. Um, you, say so, gif? you say gif? I say gif. I say gif. Other people say gif. Okay, what do you say? Do you say gif or gif? I've always said gif in the name. 
I don't understand these GIF people. You know what? We can all get along because it's it's fine. It's fine. We're not going to be divisive over this, Bowden. We're not going to to create any tension. Peanut butter, not necessarily the little media. Yeah. Exactly. I prefer Peter Pan if we're talking about peanut butter, but that's oh different. my god, that's a different point. We won't get into that today. I've already experienced that talk, Lupe, and I don't want to get into it again. We talk time zones, we talk peanut butter, it's everything. This is our friendship. Anyway, folks, thanks so much for tuning in. Check us out next time. Um, we have a couple more great episodes lined up for you this season. Um, in the meantime, please check us out on social media at Gravling Podcast and also our website, gravlingspodcast.com. Take care.